Hey, Hang Up listeners, you're about to hear a preview of this week's episode. The coronavirus pandemic has made it a challenge for us to do this show in a financially sustainable way. Because of that, we're temporarily changing how we do the podcast. Every other week, and that includes this week, the full Hang Up and Listen will be for Slate Plus members only, with just the first segment available to non-members. If you want to hear every word of every episode we do, you need to subscribe to Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year, and your membership will help assure that we can continue doing Hang Up for a very long time. If you want to subscribe, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. Thank you so much. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 26th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the latest plans to bring back pro and college sports, who is driving these proposals, and what we should hope to see in the coming months. We'll also interview ultra runner Zach Bitter, who just set a world record by running 100 miles on a treadmill in just over 12 hours. Finally, we'll talk to Simon Anthony, who you can and should watch solving a Sudoku puzzle in a 25-minute video that makes for an excellent substitute for live sports. I'm coming to you today from Washington, D.C., home of famed sports talker-abouter and Sudoku appreciator, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. With us from Palo Alto, California, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, and appreciator of the web series Real Reality Gossip, Joel Anderson. I was reading your tweets, Joel. Yeah, support Black media, <laughs> Real Reality Gossip. If you want to get the real scoop on Michael Jordan and how he, in his uh, first marriage, you need to go there. Uh, just, I'll leave it to the listeners to discover real reality gossip for themselves. We won't, I, <laughs> I will, I will admit Joel that I watched a video after, uh, after you tweeted yeah, it. Yeah, they're good. You're, spreading, they're good. you're spreading the gospel. <laughs> they finally followed me on social media today. I think we might be getting a little wow. partnership going. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so we're now heading into our third month of a sports blackout. Other than a smattering of events, a NASCAR race at Darlington, a few UFC fight cards in Jacksonville, a WWE live show in April, the games and live sporting events in America have largely come to a halt amid this global pandemic. But if the headlines from the past week are any indication, the games must go on, whether we're ready for them or not. Each of the major American sports leagues, and probably even more of the minor ones, are currently having conversations about when and where to restart their leagues. On Monday, the NHL sent a memo to its players and media with a plan to start voluntary workouts as early as June. MLB owners and its players unions are working on a deal to start training in a couple of weeks. And the NBA is talking about getting things started in late July inside of a Walt Disney complex in Orlando. It's much less clear how the NFL and college football would come back. But for example, SEC teams would be permitted to hold voluntary workouts starting June 8th. Josh, obviously a lot has changed since Rudy Gobert's positive test in March prompted the NBA to immediately suspend its season. But what do you think of this uh, <clears throat> full court press to reopen American sports? Thank you for that, Joel. <laughs> I think it's right to frame this as a contrast to Gobert's positive test because 
I thought Ben Cohen and Louise Radnofsky did a good job of framing this in the Wall Street Journal. And what they argue, and I think this is right, is the difference here is that we're now at a phase, rightly or wrongly, where a single positive test would not actually stop these leagues from proceeding. And whether that's the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, National Hockey League, I don't think you can ramp up in the way these leagues are talking about ramping up if you are then willing to stop if there's a positive test. So I think whether that's based on a shift in our view of what the right approach is public health-wise, whether it's a, a shift in our uh, you know, view of w- what the right thing is societally or just what we're able to or, or willing to accept. I think that's the reality here. And Stefan, I think one thing we need to acknowledge is that a lot of the conversation here is about like the owners and the leagues versus everyone else. And they really want to get started because they need the revenue. But like the NBA, everything we've heard, including from the head of the Players Association, Michelle Roberts, the players want to start. We've heard from the governors of New York, California, and Texas that they're happy to have leagues come back. So there's actually, I think, a lot more alignment here um, from all different parties than we might have thought or acknowledged in the past. Yeah, um, there's definitely some, as as Ben and Louise write in the journal, some moving of goalposts here in terms of safety and what priorities need to be taken. And part of that, I think, is obviously the evolution of um, the ability to test for COVID now. There are more tests available, and certainly these billion-dollar leagues, multi-billion-dollar leagues, are going to have access to thousands and thousands of tests in order to keep their players and staff and others routinely and constantly monitored. But the, the consensus, to me, comes from not just the fear of losing revenue permanently, but from this impatience that people want to play, the athletes want to play. The owners obviously have motivations that are largely financial, but they would probably also argue somehow altruistic or societal that we need sports to return. And they are also being helped by the attitude of not just those state governments, but the federal government, the White House, the administration have taken this position of flexibility when it comes to sports. There's this acknowledgement now that COVID is here, it's going to be part of whatever we do going forward, and it's treatable, and we have to deal with that. I mean, one of the basic underlying tenets of the NBA and MLB and other leagues' plans is that we've gone from not wanting to have any cases to accepting that there will be cases, no matter what we do. I think that acceptance is going to look a lot different if we have a key game, like let's just say that the NBA gets started, we have the Western Conference Finals, and Kawhi Leonard has to sit out because he tested positive. And as a result, Montrez Harrell, and as a result, Lou Williams has to sit out because they're all, you know, they've all been infected, and we have a key game, and then we're going to see how much our tolerance for, you know, a few positive tests really matters, right? And I, so We'll have Kawhi's I, I think COVID it's, it, game, like NBA's <laughs> flu game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Can I just right. back up and say not Montrez Harrell? No, hey, Montrez Harrell, nice little forward, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, that's they're losing their seventh man then. You don't you just can't discount that. But yeah, I mean, I just think that like what we think we're willing to accept right now 
is going to look a lot different than once we actually get it. Um, I think I like much like horse and much like the XFL, I think trying to stage games under these circumstances seems like a good idea. And then we're going to see it. And then we're going to be like, oh, why are we doing that? Why are we pressing so hard to get to something that's not even normalcy? We just want something that's sports like in its substance, but not necessarily sports. And I just don't know that people are going to really be satisfied when they get a chance to see it. Well, the other thing that I think is inevitable, and we've already seen it with the relaunch of soccer in Germany, is that there are going to be injuries. And then, you know, will the injuries have been caused by inadequate training period? Or is it because that injuries just sometimes, you know, happen? But like LeBron tears his ACL or something <laughs> like we might look a bit look at this and think of this differently too and you know mm-hmm. i i started and and you started Joel by talking about how things have changed since the Rudy Gobert moment and how that really shifted everything like things have changed but what the lesson of that moment is that one individual act one person one thing can really shift our perceptions in enormous ways. So whether it's an injury, whether it's a positive test for a key player, whether it's a coach, an older coach getting COVID and becoming really sick. We're just getting off a weekend where Patrick Ewing was in the hospital, a 57-year-old man who was in the hospital for COVID. So yeah. And we don't know what's going to happen. Something will inevitably happen. There's enough sports going on here and enough different leagues and enough different protocols um, that something will inevitably shift our perception here. And the interesting thing, Stefan, is, you know, there are all these like conference calls with the president or whatever, but, you know, all of these leagues have totally different approaches. Like there doesn't seem to be any sort of unified sense of, of best practices around how to restart, where, when, and or anything. I mean, if I think if you look at the protocols, there's a general coalescence of the idea of how to do this. It's no longer put a bubble over Arizona and play baseball. It's the sort of slightly more modified plan. Everyone seems to like the idea of, you know, playing in one place. I mean, that goes for like the National Women's Soccer League to the NBA. To, to some of the proposals for the NHL, playing in a limited number of places, not sort of stopping everyone from coming and going, but testing constantly when uh, a, a player, coach, personnel go in or out of the complex. So I think there is a general consensus here, but all the leagues are hiring different medical experts. They're all convening different sorts of panels. They're taking different approaches to how they resolve all of this with the players. So you're ultimately going to get to different conclusions. And that's not even to to mention that the, that these leagues are all at sort of slightly different stages of their seasons with different imperatives on when they need to finish by and how they want to conclude all of these things. And, you know, I think going back to what you said, Joel, maybe a lot of this is just sort of fanciful thinking on the part of the leagues. And once, you know, the players gather in Orlando, the approach becomes less sort of confident. I mean, everything looks good on paper, right? Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So we really, you know, this all sounds good. It sounds better and better with each passing day, but the execution is still going to be very, very complicated. Right. And I mean, I guess a question I have if we just started talking about this is what assurances do we have that anybody knows what they're doing? Like in terms of proper protocol, keeping people safe, 
we don't even have a federal response. Like people that are in charge of our national response don't seem to have a clue or some sort of organization around what we should all be collectively doing. There's none of that that exists. So we're basically trusting people with you know, very perverse incentives to get things started without necessarily being concerned about the health or the safety of people around them. People that don't even necessarily have any expertise in those fields. And we're saying, hey, they're going to start it up. I'm sure they'll figure it out. You know, like we just we don't know. And I, I guess the thing that I'm just concerned about is that we don't we don't know anything about anything right now. And we're really leaning on Tillman Fertitta and, you know, uh, whoever else, you know, to come up with the standards to keep all these people safe and the people around them. Because it's not even just the players. It's the staff that has to take care of them. It's hotel staff, people that set up arenas, things like, you know, training staff, all this other stuff. We're, we're putting their, these people's lives in their hands. And if we've seen one thing is that the human death toll is not enough to stop us from wanting to see things happen. I'm a little bit less cynical about that because I do feel like the leagues are hiring, you know, former surgeons general and the heads of major hospitals in their cities to advise them whether they follow that advice. Yeah, we're not going to be certain. But I think if they didn't take sort of make serious protocols and take serious steps, there would be um, articulated concern from health authorities. Well, but Stefan, like the, the thing that this is reminiscent of is, you know, the criminal justice system does not work in this country in all different kinds of scenarios and in all different sorts of ways. And we've seen that around Me Too stuff, for instance, that when we can't adjudicate these claims and courts of law adequately, then it falls on journalism to deal with it. And journalists, you know, you know, try try their best and are able to um, do really good investigations. But it's not any substitute for having a functional government and a system that actually has the power and the authority to do certain things that, um, you know, a, a reporter can't. And so the reason this reminds me of what's going on here is that in the absence of a functional national response, as Joel said, then it trickles down where the national response, I think, is coming from sports leagues. Like they are sending the signals and the messages to all of us about what we should be doing, what stage we're at. And that's not the role they should be playing. It's not the role that they um, are trained Maybe they'll, I think they will probably do the best job that they can, but they have a financial incentive here that's not, that we can't separate from any kind of altruistic reasons they're doing. And that's what, you know, a functional, adequate government, we would not question why things are happening. We would say they're doing this because they want to keep us safe and because this is what the best advisors say. And, you know, you know, Adam Silver, I've, I don't think he wants to like get us killed or get any players killed, but also it's not his job. And he has other jobs that are kind of in conflict with the main job here, which is health and safety. I will say that the sports leagues do seem to have better health expert teams than the federal government does right now, which is a little <laughs> scary. Right. And, you know, even beyond that, like, so the pro sports leagues have this, right? Like, you know, billion dollar enterprises have the means to put in place safety measures that will protect people that have collectively bargained 
this situation away, right? Well, more worrisome to me is the groundswell to bring back college sports. Because, I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, the SEC is talking about having voluntary workouts. You've got a lot of high-profile coaches, Dabo Swinney among them, that has, you know, said and shown that he is ready to get things started in the fall. These kids don't have, you know, any sort of organization looking out for them. There's like a general sense, like Michigan's president said, if students aren't back on campus, we won't have football. But that's just one guy. That's one voice that we've heard so far. And, you know... It's fine for the NBA and the NFL and MLB. If, they, if this is what they want to do, if they want to play games in the middle of a pandemic, fine. But college sports athletes, they're the ones that are really vulnerable. And hell, even I've, I'm from Texas and I read sports, you know, the sports pages down there. And even there's some high school coaches talking about getting a workout started again. And I'm just like, whoa, like <laughs> what? How, you don't have any resources. How do we know that you're qua- you're competent or qualified to handle that sort of uh, that threat to the the kids and the people all the way around them? I think one thing that we're gonna see, Joel, is that some teams are gonna play and some aren't in college sports, and that's gonna mm-hmm. be weird. And I hope I am not accused of hypocrisy here. <laughs> uh, maybe hypocrisy is not the right word, but I think we need to if we can stipulate that there's a lot of concerns here and a lot of questions to be raised. It's also going to be really weird and interesting to see what happens because all these formats are just so bizarre. And, yeah. you know, with the, what the NBA is suggesting basically makes it sound like it's going to be an AAU tournament with games all day long at Disney World. I really want to watch that. I think that would be fun. <laughs> um, and I feel bad for saying it, but like the NHL is going to do like a 2014 playoff format. It's going to be really like, it's, it's kind of interesting to see all of the, the like rules about what we know and expect and, and how these leagues are going to operate. Um, just kind of get tossed out and they're just like coming up with random stuff. Yeah. Don't make me, I don't want to seem like too much of a scold because I'll absolutely <laughs> watch all this shit. Like, like, you know, I'm not above, I'm not above watching it. Okay. <laughs> but if I were these leagues, I would make it as wacky as possible. I mean, look, this, this season is going to count if these seasons are played, but they're g- there will be an asterisk. They're going to be known as the COVID <laughs> year, the pandemic season. So why not fuck with the whole thing? Yeah. Playoffs, AAU tournament, brackets, whatever, you know, just come up, be creative, but be creative in a way that you can create something that might be usable to improve your league going forward. I mean, there are certainly ways for creative schedulers and planners to come up with tweaks that could be implemented when normal leagues resume play. 80-game season for baseball. Yeah. That is a, that's your a tweak, tweak Jeff? That, that's your tweak? That's my, that's my tweak. <laughs> Maybe only eight games. I don't know. Well, let's, let's, start, let's start somewhere. But yeah, with the, the basketball stuff, you know, play-in tournament for the playoffs, um, you know, rather than having all these regular season games, that seems... Like, exactly in the sweet spot, Stefan, of what you're talking about. Yeah, bag east-west and just reseed for playoffs. I mean, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Yeah, I saw that. That that looked a lot of fun. Just looking at it on screen, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm into that. Maybe right. they should do that all the time. Damn you it, know? you sports leagues with your fun ideas, encouraging us to... Uh, uh, be excited about about coming back during the pandemic. Yeah, I know. Throwing caution to the wind just so we can watch, you know, LeBron go for his fourth ring. That was a preview of this week's episode of Hang Up and Listen. To hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
It's only $35 for the first year, and your membership will help sustain our show. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. Thanks very much. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 